Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. Once again, we are thankful to have evangelist Paul Swinky come up and open the Word of God once again to us. And as you're doing, just pray that God would give you a spirit of wakefulness, that God would have your eyes open, and that you would be ready to hear. Thank you, preacher. God bless you. Thank you so much, Pastor. Let me invite you to turn in your Bible tonight to the book of First Chronicles in the Old Testament. First Chronicles and chapter number 21. I'd like to begin reading from First Chronicles 21 and verse number 7. Thank you for your faithfulness to the house of God. And I uh, appreciate so much your love for the Lord, your love for His Word. Now, I've been meaning all week just to say thank you so much to Riverview Baptist Church for your efforts and uh, making a little apartment upstairs. I appreciate that. I know I'm not the only one who has or will. And uh, I know some of you gave and labored and worked towards that and, and appreciate so much. Came out great. And, and, uh, and not only that, uh, just the whole building just... It's looking better and better. I appreciate your labor and your work and, and uh, just doing a great job for Christ, a great testimony for him. And uh, that matters. You know, people say, oh, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it does matter. Uh, in the Old Testament, they were very careful to make sure the temple honored the Lord and the house of God was appropriate for him. And, and uh, we should do the best with what the Lord's given to us. And I appreciate your willingness to do that. And, and uh, I, I really do. Thank you so much for giving and working and laboring. It, it is well done and well appreciated. So you have your Bible tonight to the book of 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Uh, I'm quite certain if you were to ask most people, what is the greatest sin in David's life? You know, they look at you like, well, that's Sunday School 101. Everybody knows that. Obviously, the greatest sin in David's life is that sordid story with Bathsheba. And I'm not exactly sure how you rate sin, but but when it was all said and done, the story of Bathsheba, well, a year later, there was a dead soldier named Uriah. By the way, if you read the story carefully, Uriah was not the only one that died that day when David or, or Captain Joab told his men to, to attack what is today the city of Amman in Jordan. And why, as they approached, the cow came to, 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 to retreat. And, and in that battle, not only was that one man Uriah killed, others were killed as well. So there were funerals all across Israel because of David's sin. Of course, there was a little baby that that died a year later, and, and that's a tragic story. Somebody else who didn't do anything wrong, someone else who was innocent, at least in that affair. But when it was all said and done, there were a handful of people who died for David's horrible sin with Bathsheba. But in 1 Chronicles 21, and again, I, I don't know exactly how you rate sin, but when David was done with this sin, it wasn't a little baby and a soldier and a few others. This time, 70,000 people would die. And it sounds like this in 1 Chronicles 21, verse number 7. And God was displeased with this thing, therefore he smote Israel. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us tonight as we open the Bible and, and this story and the Word of God may grab our attention, may grip our hearts. And Lord, may we understand the great wrath of God is so true and so real. And, and I pray that tonight you would stir us, may the fear of God and the dread of God be upon us. And then, Lord, I pray you would remind us yet again that mercy is great and grace is free. And, and so tonight, would you please do for your people what a preacher cannot do for someone perhaps in this room, someone online that has never been saved. What a wonderful night to go to the cross of Calvary and be born into the family of God. So we ask for your help in Jesus' great name. Amen. The Bible tells us Israel has sinned against God. Those sins are not even laid out so specifically, and yet they have crossed a line. It is time for God to deal with his people. You know, even in our day, the word of God is very clear in Hebrews 12. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. The Bible tells us there's only so far a child of God can go before God, because he loves his sons and he loves his daughters, says, I'm going to have to correct you, I'm going to have to chasten you you, not in anger, not because I'm upset, but because I love my children. I want them to know there still are consequences. There's a price to pay for sin. 
And whatever the line was, Israel had crossed it. And if you take this text in Chronicles and, and you combine it with the text, a very similar story back in Second Samuel, it really paints a powerful picture. You know, as an aside, sometimes when we're studying the Bible, people get confused. And they say, now, Pastor, in, in, in Matthew it says one thing. Then you get the same story in Mark and it says something a little different. Then you read the story in Luke or in John and it, it comes at it another way. And, and so which one is it, Brother Bachhouse? Is it Matthew? Is it Mark? Is it Luke or is it John? And of course, the answer to that is yes. That's the answer, yes. You see, the liberal seminary professor comes along and says, well, which one is it? Pick one. However, because we love the Bible and the Word of God, we know it's not one or the other. It's all of the above. You don't pick one or the other. You add them together. And, and it gives more power to the story. I, I mean, can you imagine the problem? I don't know if that's the right word or not, that God has. I don't know if he has problems. But here he is trying to take the eternal truths of the Bible. Here he is trying to take things that are way past our ability to understand and put them on a level where we can grasp them. It's just amazing to me how God has managed to do that in the Word of God, in the Bible. So when we have different stories, we don't pick or choose, we add them together. And when you do, the story is so powerful because God says enough is enough. It is time for me to deal with David. It is time for me to deal with Israel. And you know what the Bible tells us? The Bible tells us that he uses Satan to provoke David to number the people of Israel. God uses Satan to do his purpose. You say, how does that work? That one's beyond my pay grade. So you're going to have to ask your pastor about that one, but it's so. The Word of God says it's so. And so the Word of God tells us that David numbers the people. We call it in America taking a census. Now, as an aside, taking a census of the people is not a sinful thing. In fact, the Word of God tells us in Numbers chapter 20, and then again in Exodus chapter 30, that it was very appropriate at times for the king of Israel to number the people of Israel. Number one, they would number the people, said they would know how many men, particularly young men, would be in the military. And then, of course, we understand this, they would number the people so they knew how much taxes they could bring in. So there were occasions where God said it's perfectly right, it's biblical to number the people. But this time when David sends Captain Joab throughout the land and says, I want to know how much, how many people I've got. I want to know how big my military is. Well, you get the idea from 1 Chronicles 21. This was not about taxes. This is about David's pride. I say that because in verse number 3, Joab, his captain now, he said, the Lord make his people a hundred times so many more as they be. But my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then doth my Lord require this thing? Why will he be a cause of trespass to Israel? I mean, Captain Joab says basically, David, what are you doing? David, you're already the greatest king in the world. No doubt he was the wealthiest man in the world. He certainly was the most powerful man in the world. What else do you need? I mean, you got to know how big you are. You got to know how rich you are. You got to know how great you are. I mean, the whole thing just to, seems to serve David's pride. I want to know how big this army is. I want to know how much wealth I have. And so Captain Joab pretty much in verse number three rebukes him. Aren't you the greatest man already? He goes and he numbers the people. And in verse number five, he gave the sum of the number of the people unto David. And all they of Israel were a thousand, thousand, a hundred thousand men that drew sword. Uh, 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 that's a pretty big number. Boy, that's an incredibly big number. When, when when you think it through, do you know how big his military was? The size of the U.S. military. The U.S. Army, the U.S. Navy, the U.S. Air Force, the U.S. Marines, and if you put the Coast Guard in or not, they're in there too. You add them all up together, the U.S. military was pretty much the same size, 1.1 million. And now the Bible tells us David have his, has his number. Are you happy, David? And at, even at the end of the verse, it seems like Joab said, you know, there's people I'm not going to count because the Bible says don't count the sons of Levi. The Bible says don't count some in Judah. So he didn't. And, and I got to tell you, it's just a stunning thing when Joab is more righteous than David is. Everything's upside down because when Joab is the guy who's telling David to get right with God and stay right with God, you know that everything is backwards and everything is falling apart. 
All right, David, are you happy? Now you know how big you are. Does that, does that make you happy, David? Now you got a number. Is, this, is that gonna, that's going to take care of things? You going to sleep better tonight, David? I mean, what are you going to do? Who are you going to tell, David? I mean, how's this going to work? It's a silly thing, this pride, isn't it? And somehow we think that a number is going to solve our pride. Somehow we think a little bit more is going to make us happy. All right, David, you're the greatest man in the world, and now you got a number to prove it. All right, David, you're certainly the great king now. You, 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 you know the numbers. You got it all laid out. Are you happy? I hope David was happy, but I do know this. God was not. And so the word of God tells us in verse number seven, the reaction of heaven is that God was displeased with this thing. Therefore, he smote Israel. Would your God do that? Would your God smite Israel? Would your God judge you know, people say all the time, well, you shouldn't judge. No, wait a minute. The Bible very specifically tells us there are times to make judgments. If somebody doesn't make a judgment, they're a silly person indeed, a foolish person indeed. No, there are times that we're supposed to make judgments. And now the Bible tells us yet one more time in a Bible, Old and New Testament, where our holy God does judge, that God says enough is enough. Whatever idols may have been in the land, whatever false religion may have infiltrated Israel, because of David's sin of pride, God is going to judge them one more time. And in verse number 9, the Lord spake unto Gad, David's seer. As you read the Old Testament, occasionally you see one of these seers. Normally, when God gives the words of the Old Testament, he gives them to a prophet. He would speak the words. The prophet would write those words down. Usually, that prophet would stand up then and preach those words. And, of course, we have our Bible from the words that God gave to his prophets and to others, but mostly to prophets. But there are occasions where God raised up a man, not just to be a prophet, but to be a a seer. A seer is not simply one who heard the words of God. He saw a vision from from God. So Gad the seer is not just going to hear a message from God. He is going to receive a vision in living color. And the word of God tells us, the Lord spake unto Gad, David's seer, saying, go and tell David, saying, thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them that I may do it unto thee. It's payday. Israel's gone too far and David has led them there. And so now God says, Gad, you go tell David the seer he's got three choices. Neither of them are good. Choice number one, you can have three years of famine. Choice number two, you can spend three months running from the enemy. Or choice number three, you can face three days of what the Bible calls the sword of the Lord. Please understand, this is not time to read a magazine. This is serious business. Three day years of famine. Three months of running from your enemy or three days of the sword of the Lord. You see, there's a reason why in good days we need to make sure we fill our life with the word of God. You know, when David was a young man, I mean, we know the stories. The Lord is my shepherd. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how great is that? I mean, David constantly was filling his heart and filling his mind. He was learning the Bible, memorizing the Bible, singing the Bible. David fills his heart with the word of God. And, and in a story like this, in a rather strange way, we see how critical that is. Because even though David has backslidden, as we use the term, and David has gotten away from God, and David's pride is making choices, and and David, for whatever the reasons, is in a season in his life where he is not seeking God, and he is not obeying God, or he wouldn't have done this. Whatever has happened to David, because of all the Bible that David has put into his life, even when he finds himself in a disaster like this, do you know what he does? He makes a Bible choice. So when Gad the seer says, David, what's it going to be? Three years of famine, three years uh, months on the run, or three days of the sword of the Lord. In verse number 13, David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. It's like his insides were squeezing him. Let me fall now into the hand of the Lord, for very great are his mercies, but let me not fall into the hand of man. You know, David knows God personally. He knows that God can, in three days, do a lot more damage than 
than an army can do in three months or that a famine can do in three years. But David understands something. All those years of the Bible, all those years of singing, all those years of walking with God, now in the midst of a mess, in the midst of a trial, David instinctively knows the right answer to such a difficult question. Let me fall into the hands of the mercies of God. For great are my God's mercies. That's the right answer. And even though David is a long way from God, David knows, throw yourself at the mercy of God. So the judgment of God hits the land. You know, the chapter begins with David thinking, how great am I? Let me number my forces. Let me know how many soldiers I have. Three days later, his army was considerably smaller. The Bible tells us it was a pestilence in verse number 12. Three days of the sword of the Lord, even the pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the coasts of Israel. I'm not exactly sure which coast it refers to. Probably it is talking about the Mediterranean Sea. I suppose it is a small possibility. He's talking about the Dead Sea. But most likely the phrase goes to the western side of Israel, to the Mediterranean Sea, and it's like a tidal wave. Why closer to the coast and by Bible times, there were smaller villages, and then the cities would become fenced cities a little bit larger as you'd make your way up the hill towards Jerusalem. So like a tidal wave, the judgment of God begins, and the word of God tells us the sword of the Lord falls upon the land. No, as you read it carefully, it is the angel of the Lord, an Old Testament appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ with a sword in his hand, and that sword begins to come down upon the people of Jerusalem, oh, I'm sorry, of Israel. It starts at the coast. And that tidal wave encompasses little villages and it encompasses smaller cities. And you can imagine for three days the horror as the screams and the cries rise from the land of Israel. Why, their men and ladies and boys and girls, they've lost their husbands, they have lost their sons, they have lost their family members, they've lost their brothers. 70,000 men have died. Why, the cry is everywhere in the land. The judgment of God is fallen and the death and the carnage is beyond destruction. And yet we come to a moment in time. It is a breathtaking moment in the word of God. We come to just one of those heart stopping moments in verse number 15. Where the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan. The Jebusite. That sword has come crashing down again and again. Now that sword is dripping with the blood of the men of Israel. And yet the word of God tells us for a moment in time, the angel of the Lord has come to the city of Jerusalem. He has come to the highest spot in the city of Jerusalem. He is hovering over that place with the sword of the Lord, the bloody sword of God over his hand. Why, for all of the death and all of the carnage, for 70,000 men that have died between the Mediterranean and the walls of Jerusalem. That is nothing compared to what is going to happen now. For if the sword of the Lord falls upon the city of Jerusalem, a city that is loaded with people, a city that is packed with people, why, when the judgment of God falls upon Jerusalem, that 70,000 number is going to multiply in a hurry. And the angel of the Lord has come to this moment in time. The wrath of God has fallen upon the land. And as the angel of the Lord hovers over the threshing floor, the Bible tells us this high spot in the city of Jerusalem. In verse number 15, the Lord beheld and he repented him of the evil. And he said to the angel that destroyed, it is enough. Notice, stay now thine hand. In other words, with that sword in the hand of the angel of the Lord, ready to fall upon the city and death and destruction unimaginable. All of a sudden, the God of heaven says, stay, not stop, but stay for a moment in time. Let's just stop right here. Hold back for a moment. And if one blow of that sword comes down on the capital city of Jerusalem, what a bloody picture it would be. And God says, stop right here just for a moment. Can you imagine in the story that is the Old Testament coming to such a place I mean, can you imagine the panic? Can you imagine the worry? And yet even more than that, can you picture in your mind with the angel of the Lord holding the sword of the Lord, that bloody sword that has already taken 70,000 and with one order and with one command, that sword comes down and the city of Jerusalem will know death and destruction. And God says, stop here for a moment and let's see if people are willing to deal with their sins. It is a heart-stopping climax in the Bible. 
It's one of those moments. And it's a rare moment in truth where God just peels back eternity. And you and I, through the pages of the Bible, get a glimpse of a battle that is real even in this building tonight that our eyes cannot see. Remember the story earlier in the Word of God where the Word of God tells us that God's prophet Elisha was in a city called Dothan. The Syrians had come and they had surrounded and besieged that city. And and when you read about a besieging in the Old Testament, it means they didn't really attack the city, they just closed it off. And ultimately, they knew if they were patient that the people inside would either surrender or die of starvation. And now the city was besieged. Cannibalism was everywhere. There was destruction. There was death everywhere you looked. The entire city was in in a panic except for one man, God's man, Elisha. And when you pick up the story in Samuel, his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? We're all going to die. There's nowhere to turn. There's nowhere to go. The enemy is too great. The foe is too strong. And then comes that classic verse in the Old Testament, doesn't it? With everybody into a panic, the man of God, Elisha, puts it like this. Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Nobody else could see that, but God's man did. And now he asked the Lord to open the eyes of the servant. And when he did, it says that the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. It's what you and I cannot see with our physical eyes. And yet right here, anytime the word of God is preached, there is an unseen battle taking place. There is a war. Oh, no, no, no. We wrestle not against flesh and blood or principalities and powers. We wrestle against the rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness and high places. There is an unseen battle that is very real tonight with the angels of God and the saints of God and the glory of God fighting against Satan and his forces. It is a very real warfare. And for a moment in time, the skies are peeled back and Elisha's servant sees that they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Now one more time, our eyes are peeled back and we are allowed through the word of God as David did in verse 16, where it says he lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord stand between the earth and the heaven, having a drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. That drawn sword in his hand stretched out. All it takes is one order. All it takes now is one command. And should God in heaven say, now that sword comes down upon Jerusalem and the 70,000 that have already died in the land of Israel, that will be nothing compared to what happens next. David's eyes are open. Can you imagine the fear in David's eyes? Can you imagine that king of Israel who's used to being in control of everything? Can you imagine him looking up in terror as he sees the angel of the Lord and that bloody sword raised over his hand? And all it takes is one command. That sword comes crashing down. And if that weren't enough, in verse number 15... The angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor, the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Really? This climactic moment, this incredible heart-stopping moment, it all happens at a threshing floor. A threshing floor, a rock where they would take a a, a crop and they would throw it on that rock. And then the wild beast, the animals, the burden beasts of burden would come and stomp on it. And hopefully the chaff would blow away from the wind and they would have grain to make their breads. It was a dirty place. It was a smelly place. Why, you would think that if the wrath of God was going to be dealt with, you would have to have a house of religion. Why, where are the stained glass windows? Why, where is the stately music? Where are the ministers in their robes. No, of all things, the wrath of God is going to be dealt with of all places at a dirty smelly threshing floor. And if that weren't enough, it was the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And we started in Genesis chapter 1 tonight and made our way to 1 Chronicles 21. First, we'd be pretty good speed readers, I would think. 
But had we done that, as soon as we read Ornan the Jebusite, the gray matter would start kicking over. We said, I've seen that before. I've seen that before. Yep, that little thing, Jebusite, has shown up once or twice in the Bible. The first time we read about it is in the days of Joshua and Joshua 3. Remember, as Joshua gathers his people together and says, today we go into the land, the promise. Today we take the land that God has given unto us. And he said it with these words, hereby ye shall know that the living God is among you. And he tells his he will without fail drive out from before you. And you know the list, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. And sure enough, when we come to the end of Joshua, and that old man's about ready to go home to glory. One of the last things he does is rehearse the history of, with Israel, the people. And he reminds them that they went over the Jordan and they came unto Jericho. And that's where they fought the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, Ivites, and the Jebusites. It would seem that 400 years earlier, the people of Ornan got into a battle with Joshua. It would uh, tell us in the word of God, they lost that battle. I, we thought that four centuries earlier, the Jebusites were wiped out, but not so, not so. No, they had come and whoever was left of those battles had retreated and and returned to a a beautiful place that became the city of Jebus, the home of the Jebusites. And it's very possible that Ornan was their king because the king would often live in the highest spot in the city and this threshing floor would be at the highest spot at the city. And, and as we know our history, well, 400 years earlier, Joshua conquered that people and yet somehow they lived to tell another day. It was four decades earlier, 40 years earlier, where the Bible tells us that David had conquered Jerusalem and Jerusalem had become the capital of Judah. And now you would think that, well, these Jebusites would be long gone. And yet the story of Ornan called Aruna in Samuel is that four centuries earlier, my people were on the run, virtually gone, but God saved us. Four decades earlier, David took our city and conquered us. But somehow, some way, this man is still alive. Somehow, some way, this man still has a place to live. And yet, when the wrath of God is ready to fall, it is more than fascinating that he is standing over the Jebusite. He is standing over the threshing floor of a Gentile. Because when the wrath of God falls, it doesn't matter if somebody's Jewish or Gentile. It doesn't matter what someone's background may or may not be. Why, he might cry out, I'm just a stranger. Here, He might cry out and say, I'm not, I'm an alien from the commonwealth of Israel. There are a lot of things that he may have claimed, but on judgment day, it doesn't matter what blood flows through somebody's veins. Now the wrath of God is ready to fall upon the threshing floor of Ornan. As the angel of the Lord holds that bloody sword over the city of Jerusalem, all it takes is one command, and that sword comes down. It will start with a Gentile named Ornan, but it will not stop there. The blood will flow like a river. The wrath of God is ready to fall. It is one of those intense moments in the word of God. What is David going to do? Uh, 70,000 have died. That pales compared to what is about to happen. The angel of the Lord holds that sword, and of all places, he's not in a house of religion. He is not in a stately cathedral. Of all places, he is at the thresh, the dirty, smelly threshing floor of Ornan. Verse 16. The end of the verse says that David and the elders of Israel who were clothed in sackcloth fell upon their faces. Of course they did. No time for stately robes now. No time for kingly crowns now. David is dressed in sackcloth, the garment of the funeral. David knows he's about to go to the funeral of Jerusalem, the funeral of Israel. There's nobody to impress now. And it's not just David. The Bible tells us the elders of Israel are there. They look up and they see the angel, the Lord, holding that bloody sword, ready to attack Jerusalem, they fall on their faces pleading with God. As for Ornan, well, in verse number 20, he turned back and saw the angel. And notice his four sons with him, they hid themselves. They went to the dens and the mountains and the rocks. There they are saying, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. And literally from the wrath of the Lamb. David is on his knees pleading with God, begging God for mercy. The elders of Israel have joined him dressed in sackcloth. Ornan and his boys have run to the caves. They are trying to hide themselves from the wrath of God. It is a climax in the Bible. It is that one moment in time as the judgment of God is going to fall on Jerusalem. It'll never be the same. 
What are they going to do? And as everything just stops for a moment in time in verse 18, the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David, notice, the angel of the Lord will not speak to David. David is not right. So he commands Gad, the seer, to say to David that David should go up and set up an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. What a thing. Of course, he's going to tell David to build an altar. That's exactly what they do in the Bible. When the wrath of God is ready to fall, when the judgment of God is going to come, when there is no hope for humans but for the mercy of God, it is time to build an altar. No time to build a great temple. No time to build a great cathedral. No time to build a massive house of religion. But no, no, they're going to gather the stone together most likely and they're going to put the stones in the form of the altar. Uh, They're going to get an old sacrifice They're going to build an altar, and there's no time to go anywhere else. They're going to build that altar at the smelly threshing floor of Ornan. It's what has to happen. Because, you see, when the wrath of God is stirred, contrary to what modern music tells us, God is not just going to smile and say, well, it makes me sad to see the way you live, but I always just forgive. No, it doesn't work like that. The wrath of God has been aroused. The only hope for a sinner is an altar. But putting stones together and making an altar, that's not going to be enough. So upon that altar, there's going to have to be a sacrifice. And it's not just any old sacrifice. It is a sacrifice that is obedient to God's word, that is well-pleasing to him. The sacrifice, the lamb, the goat, the bull, whatever that sacrifice may be, that is laid on top of that altar, that sacrifice whose blood is shed is going to be a very innocent sacrifice. That little lamb never did anything wrong. But you know, all of that is useless. You can build all the altars you want. You can sacrifice all the animals you want. David and his son Solomon, there were times when they sacrificed hundreds and even thousands of sacrifices. No, that's not going to get it done. That's not going to be enough because for all the sacrifice and for all the altars, it is meaningless unless, unless God accepts the offering. And so at the threshing floor of the threshing floor of Ornan. The wrath of God is ready to fall with the angel holding that drawn bloody sword. And the only hope, David, is right now, right now, you're going to have to build an altar. Well, verse 21, David came to Ornan. Ornan looked and saw David and went out of the threshing floor and bowed himself to David with his face to the ground. David said to Ornan, grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar there and under the Lord. Thou shalt grant it me for the full price that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Ornan said unto David, take it to thee and let my Lord the king do that which is good in his eyes. Lo, I give thee the oxen also for the burnt offerings and the threshing instruments for the wood and the wheat for the meat offering. I give it all. David comes to Ornan and says, right here in this place, I'm going to buy, and and later in the story, it's not buy just the threshing floor, he bought the whole place, the whole mountain. I want you to sell it to me. And Ornan, he's already seen the angel of the Lord holding that bloody sword. He knows that he's as good as dead. And Ornan says, sell it, not happening. King David, I'm giving it to you. It's yours. Anything you need, stones, whatever you need to build that. You need an animal? I got plenty of oxen that were here threshing this thing. You got them. David, you know the yoke we put around the oxen? We'll start carving that up. You can use the wood to start the fire. David, I don't know what you need, but whatever you need, you've got it. You've got it, and there is no cost. And it is a stunning thing in verse number 24, where King David said to Ornan, Nay, but I will verily buy it for the full price for I will not take that which is thine for the Lord nor offer burnt offering without cost David's not going to start clipping coupons now now this isn't the time to cut a deal the wrath of God is ready to fall upon Jerusalem and the last thing you want to do now is to get cheap and stingy David buys the whole place give or take a little bit $327,000. 
David pays a hefty price. Because that's the other thing. See, when the wrath of God is ready to fall and the sword of the Lord is ready to come down, well, not only does there have to be an altar, and not only does an innocent animal have to be offered upon that, and not only is it true that God must approve and accept that sacrifice, but that sacrifice has to be incredibly costly. Cheap sacrifice won't work now. When Adolf Hitler had his visions of conquering the world back in the 40s, tragically, and I mean tragically, and there is no excuse for this. He did it with the aid and the help of ministers all across the land of Germany. There is no denying that. You will never, ever, ever, ever hear me positively quote Martin Luther. Martin Luther hated the Jewish people. With a passion, he hated the Jewish people. The Hitler and his regime, regime was built on the philosophies of Martin Luther. They quoted him extensively. There was one minister, one pastor in Germany that looked at the atrocities and the hatred that Hitler and those demonic people had for Jewish people. There was one, and I'm sure there were others, but there was one we know of who stood up and said, not on my watch. And as he watched ministers compromise, and he watched ministers sell out the people of God, and he watched ministers more worried about their own lives than they were about life and truth, this pastor in Germany looked at his country and said, the problem in Germany, and this is what he called it, he said, it's cheap grace. Cheap grace. That man would ultimately be martyred and killed by Adolf Hitler, just a few short days before the Allies made their way into Germany. Cheap grace. You know what our problem is in America? Really? Cheap grace. Cheap grace. Just, just come to a house of religion. You, you don't even have to now. You just, you know, just turn on the TV. Just get, you know, for, for 20 minutes. Just sway back and forth a little bit. Put a nice t-shirt on. Wave your arms in the air and then tell Jesus that you love him. And then you can go out for the rest of the week and do what you want, live like you want, talk like you want, act like you want. It doesn't matter. You can live like the world, smell like the world, talk like the world, act like the world, just so long as for 20 minutes on Sunday morning that your life is interrupted enough and you just wave your arms and tell Jesus you love him. Cheap grace. There is nothing cheap about Calvary. There was nothing cheap at the threshing floor of Ornan. David, I'll cut you a deal, man. I got a good price. <laughs> the good price is free. We said, That's a pretty good price. David said, not happening. We are talking about the city of Jerusalem. We are talking about probably hundreds of thousands of people. And if we don't get this right, if we don't get this right, then it isn't going to matter how much I paid for this. David says, not happening, sir. I am paying and I am paying full price. We are not going to take something that's on sale. We're not going to take a bargain and give it to Jesus and pretend like everything's all right. God is not worth second best. There has to be an altar. There has to be an innocent sacrifice. That sacrifice has to be incredibly expensive. And then God must approve. Well, David pays the price. 327,000 of our dollars. And in verse 26, David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord. The animal has died. The innocent animal has given his life. The blood has been shed. And now every eye has to turn towards heaven because by faith and by obedience, David has done what God has told him to do. The man of God, Gad, the seer, said, build the altar, put the innocent animal, shed the blood. It has to be expensive. And then... And then we have to look towards heaven. It's all up to God. What is he going to do? And can you imagine in verse number 26, David has by grace through faith obeyed the word of God. And he looks up and the Bible says that God, he answered him from heaven by fire upon the altar of the burnt offering. Four times in the Old Testament, God sent fire all the way from heaven upon an offering. 
The first time it happened was way back in the book of Leviticus when the priests were inaugurated. The second time it happens is right here. The third time it happens is 2 Chronicles 7 when Solomon dedicated the temple. And the fourth time it happens is at a place called Mount Carmel when the fire of God falls upon the altar of Elijah four times. And there's one thing that ties those four events together. Each time the fire of God fell all the way from heaven upon the sacrifice, the altar, it meant that God accepted the sacrifice. And now in verse number 27, the Lord commanded the angel, and he put up his sword again into the sheath thereof. Verse 27 and a half says, David's heart started beating again. Can you imagine? Every eye looked towards heaven. We have sinned against the Lord. And if that sword of the Lord's wrath comes down upon us, it will be justice. It will be precisely what we deserve. And yet when the wrath of God was ready to fall, David says, what do we do? And the angel of the Lord tells the man of God to tell the king of Israel, build an altar. Put an innocent animal on that altar. It's going to have to be an expensive sacrifice. And then we're looking to heaven. And as the blood of the animal is shed, what is God going to do? Is he going to find that an acceptable offering or is God going to refuse it and that day God accepted the offering of David he tells the angel Lord put the sword into the sheath in other words the wrath of God collided with the mercy of God and at the threshing floor of Ornon mercy won the day wrath met mercy and mercy won. Not because they built a house of religion. Not because they sang a beautiful song. Not because there was beautiful religious artwork. Not because of all the trappings of religion that we think we've got to have. No, it was at a dirty, smelly threshing floor where the wrath of God met the mercy of God. The altar was built. The innocent lamb was, blood was shed. The cost was very great. And God accepted the sacrifice. What a story. And it all happens at the threshing floor of Ornon. Just before we put the story to bed, there's another verse you need to see. Would you turn a few chapters to your right to Second Chronicles chapter number 3? 2 Chronicles chapter number 3, and you'll notice in verse number 1, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse number 1, that Solomon began to build the house of the Lord. Oh, you say, that's Solomon's temple. No, no. In the Bible, there is no such thing as Solomon's temple. Do you know that? In the Bible, it is never, not one time, ever called Solomon's temple. One time, it is called the house of the Lord that Solomon built. But every other time, it is referred to as the house of the Lord. It is not Solomon's temple, it's the Lord's. And Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. But look at this. Look where he builds the house of the Lord, the temple. He builds it in, of all places, Mount Moriah. And it's not just Mount Moriah, it is Mount Moriah where the Lord appeared unto David, his father, in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. Well, it's not just the threshing floor of Ornon now, it's got a name. That dirty, smelly threshing floor where the wrath of God and the mercy of God collided was called Mount Moriah. Ah, we've heard that before, haven't we? Of course. Genesis chapter 22 tells the story of a day where an old, old man named Abraham looked at his son, who's probably 30 years old, give or take a few, and said, Isaac, Isaac, we've got a job to do. God has given me a commandment. God had said, Abraham, take thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest. And where did he send him? He sent him to the threshing floor of Ornon. Oh, and that day it was called Mount Moriah. You're going to take your boy and the servants join Abraham and Isaac until finally the father says to the servants, y'all going to stay back. The boy and I, we are going up. And here's something we cannot do in our English language. However, many languages, including the languages of the Bible, can. It is a plural verb that says we are going up and a plural verb that says, we are coming back. There was never a doubt. 
I mean, Abraham was going to slay his son believing God would raise him from the dead. The servants can't take this. This is a trip for the father and the son. They make their way up Mount Moriah to offer unto the Lord a great sacrifice, an expensive sacrifice. For Abraham, it could not have been more expensive. Oh, he was a great man. He was a wealthy man. He no doubt in our thinking was a multi-millionaire, if not more. One of the wealthiest men in all the world. But for all of his millions, none of that mattered on the top of Mount Moriah. He was going to offer something far more expensive than any investment or bank account. Thy son, thine only son Isaac. Isaac and Abraham build the altar. And now it is time to put a most expensive sacrifice on that altar. Abraham lays his boy. Well past a hundred years old and his son was 30. And I'm quite certain that if Isaac had chosen to, he easily could have run for his life and the old dad never would have caught him. He willingly lays himself upon that altar. But now it's time for the blood to be shed. You couldn't have a more costly sacrifice than the son that you love. And now as that daddy Abraham takes that knife and he's ready to plunge it right into the heart of his son. Well, you know how it turns out and I know how it turns out. Could I remind us please tonight? Abraham had not read Genesis 22 yet. And with that knife, oh, he wouldn't have killed his son. Oh, yes, he would have. Hebrews tells us that he full well intended to plunge that knife in the heart of his boy, believing that God would raise his son from the dead. And as that knife is coming down, God stops him and says, Abraham, I know you love me. I know you mean business. And what do you know? There was a a male lamb, a ram with his horns caught in the thicket. Jehovah Jireh is how Abraham would say it. The Lord has provided. What a sacrifice. And it all happened at the threshing floor of Ornan. The wrath of God collided with the mercies of God. And when Abraham and Isaac climb up Mount Moriah, at that special place, they build an altar, and the sacrifice could not be more expensive. And yet when it is time to shed the blood, the Bible tells us the wrath of God and the mercies of God, they collide on the top of Mount Moriah. And when the dust settles, mercy wins the day. Now, centuries later, David climbs the very same mountain to the very same rock, to the very same place. And in Abraham's day and in David's day, the wrath of God collides with the mercies of God on Mount Moriah. And mercy wins the day. But you know, there's one more story, isn't there? And this one, of course, is not Mount Moriah, but it is as the Lord told Abraham from the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. So Abraham on Mount Moriah, wrath met mercy and mercy won. David on Mount Moriah, wrath met mercy and mercy won. But from Mount Moriah it shall be seen. And should we stand on Mount Moriah tonight, the great temple mount of Jerusalem, if we look in the right direction, probably we, we look towards the north and you cannot help but see it even now, centuries later, a steep cliff and you see the features of a skull. For it was in a place called Calvary where the Lord Jesus Christ would die for you and for me. Build an altar. This one's not an altar of stone or wood. This one's an old rugged cross. A sacrifice, an expensive sacrifice. You think it couldn't get more expensive than thy son, thine only son whom thou lovest. It couldn't get more expensive financially than David paying such a great price. They pale compared to what happened at Calvary. From Mount Moriah, you can see Calvary. And at Calvary, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the Bible says he redeemed us, not with corruptible things like silver and gold from the vain conversation received by tradition of your father's. It was the precious blood of Christ, the priceless blood of Christ. The blood of the innocent lamb has to be shed. The lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. But you know, it would all come to naught unless God accepted the sacrifice. He he does with Abraham... There's a a ram with his horns caught in a thicket. He does with David on Mount Moriah. David, I accept the sword goes back into the sheath. But what would happen at Mount Calvary? We read Isaiah 53, and it's, it's one of the most emotional chapters in the Bible, is it not? Wounded for me, 
bruised for me. The chastisement of my peace was upon him. By his stripes I am healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray, turned everyone to his own way. And, you know, by the time we get to verse number 8 or 9 of Isaiah 53, we are so emotionally drained. And, and we have come to Calvary and seen Christ die for our sins. It, it takes something out of a child of God who loves the Lord. It's an emotional thing. It's just a deep thing. It's a powerful thing. And, and you know, the problem with Isaiah 53 is that Usually we never get to the end of the chapter because all that Jesus did and the great price that he paid would come to naught unless God accepted the sacrifice. By the way, there's a word for that. It's called propitiation. And when you come to the Isaiah 53 in the end of the chapter, do you know what the last thing says? God, he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. God put his stamp of approval on the cross of Calvary. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Oh, it was on the top of Mount Moriah that the wrath of God met the mercies of God in the days of Abraham. And when it was all said and done, mercy won the battle. It was at the top of Mount Moriah in the days of David when the wrath of God collided with the mercies of God. And mercy won the day, but from Mount Moriah, you can see where the greatest battle of all was fought, where the wrath of God that abideth on you and me who are not saved, the wrath of God, meaning we're one heartbeat away from hell, collided with the great mercies of God. And when Jesus walked away from that empty tomb, mercy was great and grace was free. Pardon was multiplied to me. Because it was at Calvary, mercy won the battle. Wrath versus mercy, and mercy won. Is he your Savior tonight? Do you know Christ is your Savior? If not, his love is so great. The magnificent love of God is so deep that he did something we cannot comprehend. He gave his only begotten Son that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we love God, we don't seek him, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. But unless you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you are saved, it all comes to naught. The only hope for a sinner with the wrath of God abiding on him is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I know many tonight say, I know him. I know I'm saved. Have our hearts grown cold towards the cross? You know, as we get along in our Christian life, it's an easy thing to get a little bit cold and a little bit indifferent. And pretty soon, like, well, the Bible says in Revelation, a church of people can lose their first love for Calvary and for what Jesus did. And for the great price that he paid so that I could be saved, we can let Calvary warm our hearts again. For it was the place where mercy and wrath collided and mercy won the day. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three zero eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three zero eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.